Hello, and welcome to League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I'm your host. This episode was recorded on June 21st, 2021. Today, I have with me Tyler Latwila. In this episode, we discuss cancel culture and the emergent issue that appears to be infiltrating everyday conversation. We bounce from self-censorship in interpersonal relationships to corporate censorship over COVID vaccine safety and alternative treatments. We also delve into the evolving language of racism, as well as the importance of culture and whether or not white culture exists. To me, the current exploratory climate looks like a toxic relationship. We are actively dissuaded from addressing our disputes with each other and having open dialogue in good faith. So often I'm wrong about things. It is imperative to me that I have conversations with a diverse array of opinions so that as a group, we may come one step closer to some form of truth. Under the topic of COVID vaccine safety discussed in this episode, I'm hopeful that I'm wrong and would be so elated to profess my painful ignorance. I'm equally horrified that what I say might be right. I hope that this episode can encourage you to have difficult discussions on important matters in your own life. We must be afforded the luxury to discuss important ideas poorly, lest we do not say anything of importance at all. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm going to be talking with Tyler Latwila. Anyone that listens regularly would know that Tyler is my most repeated guest, and for good reasons. Tyler offers a nuanced and diverse perspective to any topic that presents itself during a conversation and is always open to critiquing not only me, but also himself. It is something that I look up to, great, to him for greatly and strive to integrate into my own conversational style. Recently, Tyler launched his own podcast, Talanoa. Definitely go check it out when you're through with this. I expect Tyler to deliver top quality, as always. Tyler, man, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, man. Third time, I guess. On the, yeah, on the you, show. you are awesome. my by far most repeated guest, so you, you hold that trophy. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, definitely not upset about that. Can you tell me about your podcast? Let's start off with that. Why, yeah, dude. Why did you start the podcast? Where did it come from? What does yeah, well, Talanoa mean? Am I pronouncing um, it right? Yeah, Talanoa. You did, you did fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I've, a podcast is something I've always want to do. I think everyone kind of talks about it. Everyone talks about, yo, let's start a business. Let's start a podcast. Actually, me and Chris Kaiser back in when, um, when it was, I think the first year Regan Fathers was overseas and he came back for Christmas. So it would have been two years ago. And we started a podcast. We recorded one episode with Regan. And the idea of that podcast was to be us to chat with like people we've played against in the ACAC or, and just talk shit about, you know, like we compete against each other on the, on, on the net and just kind of um, converse about stuff that happened. And, and when we talked with Regan, he got into some stuff. Um, there was a little rival, rivalry between him and um, oh my, what's the guy from Lethbridge? Dax Whitehead yeah. <laughs> and it, it was kind of juicy like gossipy stuff and and um I I think we still have the recording I might even just put it up but we didn't continue with it uh just didn't happen anyways fast forward this um past year I met a guy um Raymond Fox and then uh River Thomas uh, River played volleyball at Olds I think he still does. Um, two indigenous guys. Uh, I met them through the UBIAA, which me and you have chatted about before. But 
they started a podcast and it, it went off like they had some pretty big guests on quite early um it was huge especially in the indigenous community later on they decided to start a kind of a media company and reached out to some people to start a podcast and this was back in i want to say february and i said like man i'm in maybe i'll do one with um this girl and this guy and he was like nah man like you need to do this yourself you're just using them as crutches they're not going to be as dedicated as you are i know you want to do this and i was like you're right man i appreciate you giving me that little kick in the ass um but yeah it just took a few months to for me to actually have the time because i'm sure you know fuck it takes a lot of time to recording itself is you know whatever but cutting it up even just getting stuff onto spotify and apple is a bit of a process too so yeah man i um, always wanted to do it the name Talanoa just came to me as soon as i um was thinking of a name so in pacific culture like i'm tongan myself you Talanoa is does has no direct translation but for example a random night me and my brothers were like hey let's go over to our cousin lola's house for talanoa and it's um a, quite a common thing in collectivist cultures you just go to that person's house you sit around and you talk tala means literal translation is talk or say or tell and then noa actually means nothing literally means nothing or zero mm-hmm. so loosely translates to talking about nothing um but is also used in you know um in a cultural sense for storytelling or tradition of passing things down so yeah right away that came to me that's going to be the name um and similar to what you do man you just sit around and you talk and you bounce ideas off each other and mm-hmm. and uh yeah so are you are you sticking to long form i listened to your first episode and it didn't sound like you would cut it up at all it was really good i enjoyed it a lot it was cool to get a little bit of an inkling into the the tunga tradition and especially the tattoo part was very cool i'm not sure if that's actually tunga but yeah so Nehemiah Mate was my first guest and we actually played with each other um for the New South Wales team way back before he is the captain of the Volleyers now unbelievable um yeah. crazy story and that episode was great because he was just good at telling stories but I was actually super nervous the whole time and it was a little more interviewee than conversational which is uh what you you live and you learn right um so yeah i i was looking at cutting it up and then when i listened back to it i was like there's nothing here that i can cut out man this is all good stuff so um i think i'm just going to see how it goes but most likely yeah it'll be long form not trying to cut too much stuff out unless someone says some dumb shit i don't want anyone to get canceled on my podcast <laughs> i uh I've been listening I am I'm having a girl on next week and she does she, her name's Emma and she does the Curious One podcast and I've been listening to it over the past few weeks and she does a little bit of cutting and I would I would just love it if they weren't cut because they'll start to talk about something and then it'll cut out a little bit 
and then it'll just jump to another part of the conversation. And I love to, I love to hear how the conversation actually flows. And I love to hear people mess up when they're having a conversation. Even when I listen back to my own podcast, I love listening to the, the ums and the likes and all of those things that not only do they help me get better at speaking, but hearing other people do it also gives me confidence that I'm not the only one that's messing up all the time. Well, there's something beautiful about it, man. And so I listened to your episode with Taylor Avril. Um, and it was just supernatural, not supernatural, but it was very natural. You know what I mean? And it was nice to just sounded like two bros just talking, but about some pretty cool stuff. And, um, you know, most of the time people are listening to podcasts, they're kind of doing something else while they're listening. So the ability to be able to kind of tune out and tune back in instead of like, if you cut everything into a condensed um, length, I kind of have to listen to everything in there because it's all such important stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I like that. I did a, do you know, have you ever heard of Train Ugly or the Learner Lab? No. It's uh, this guy, Trevor Reagan. I had him on, I was, I talked to him earlier this week and he does that. He essentially does long form conversations with all of these experts in learning. So they talk about neuroplasticity and storytelling and all this super cool stuff. And then they cut it down to this 20 minute episode where they talk about the concepts and then they add in clips from the individual interviews. And I've got to sit down for those. I, I sit down and listen because it's just all so dense. And yeah, like you said, it's really nice to listen to something and not have the pressure to be focused on it the entire time. It's so difficult to do that. And yeah, I find that those are, I, th I think that my episode with Taylor might be one of my favorites because it really feels like a conversation. Sometimes when I, when I do these, there's not as much back and forth. It's more of a, it's more unilateral. I'm just asking questions and then they give a full answer. And then mm -hmm. I ask a question based on that answer. So it's just question, 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 rather than something that you and I do as well, I think is we consistently move back and forth in terms of speaking and listening. And it doesn't feel as though I'm waiting for you to finish to talk again. I'm just listening, taking everything in. And then often I, I listen to our other episode, or the second episode that we did this morning. And there are some points where neither of us, one of us will finish speaking and then there'll be a break for four or five seconds because I think that number one, we're giving each other the space to maybe flesh out a thought completely. But then also it's when you're really listening to someone and you, you really aren't waiting for your turn to speak when they finish speaking, it's almost a little bit of a surprise. Mm -hmm. You go, Oh, it's my turn to talk. Like I'm, I don't, I don't have much prepared. That was really awesome. I was just listening to that. And now I'm now, now I'm the, the spotlights on me. So I find those conversations to be just my absolute favorite. Yeah, I um, haven't listened to either of the podcasts that I've been on with you because it's so hard for me to hear myself talk. Or I'm also the last episode that we did was all around race and stuff and it's super uncomfortable stuff. And I think we both kind of felt it. and But we're both also moving towards... Uh, not conclusions, but, you know, we're both generating ideas and, and bouncing things off each other as well. Um, so yeah, I've never, I've never been back and listened to them. Taylor was awesome. Like from the start, he, mm -hmm. which is cool because I mean, um, he's a pretty high profile volleyball player. And from the get go, he was just like, 
yo what's up with you but it was it was awesome man i gotta get him on too yeah i sent him a message and said hey man do you want to do a podcast hashtag you won't because that's <laughs> that's kind of his thing all of the stuff he, he posts he's does these crazy workouts and then he says you won't like oh you might but you won't so i yeah. sent him that and he was immediately we just got along we just hit it off he was like my man yep when are we doing this let's schedule it let's go so that was if you're gonna try to get him on that's definitely the recommendation i might have to do it yeah yeah he was just a sweet guy just super open and yeah that was i hadn't listened to mine and yours pot number like i can't really listen to myself speak either i've actually gotten better at it listening speeding up the video or the audio actually makes it a lot easier to listen to myself but that's why i decided to do full length when i first started was because editing and cutting stuff killed me and then i realized that it was actually a lot more fun to do full length because people were able to hear and understand the errors that people make and you actually get the flow of the conversation a lot better it doesn't feel as broken up conversationally you're jumping from one thing to another there's you can understand the flow so that was definitely the reason that i did that but i listened to it and i i didn't actually when i put it out i was super anxious you you know that i get super anxious talking about that kind of stuff any any cultural stuff i'd even that's even something that i want to talk about today is why we get so anxious about speaking about those sorts of things and but I, I was anxious for probably a week and a half. I was waiting for the mobs to show up at my door down here. So, but I, I listened to it and I didn't think that we actually said anything that was over and above what would be considered to be correct. And anything that we did talk about, there was always, I think any time that I went a little bit too far, maybe, you were always there to bring it back a little bit and say, hey, well, let's consider this for a second. And let's consider that and let's take these different perspectives and actually weigh them against each other so that we can find some middle ground. There's this, there's this really cool Buddhist story that I think perfectly encapsulates the idea of speaking about any of these cultural issues. And it's so Buddha gathers this group of wise men and they're all very old, very wise and very blind. And so he, he puts them all together and then the Buddha goes off and then the, the blind men feel this thing. They find this thing in the, the middle of their group and they're all touching it. They're trying to figure out what it is. And one of them says, oh, it's a paintbrush. And another one says, no, this is a, this is a pillar. We're, we're outside of a Colosseum and this is a pillar. This is and another guy says, no, this is a hose. Another guy says, no, we're on a sail ship. This is a sail. And the Buddha comes back and they're all fighting because each one of them thinks that their own perspective is correct. And one's screaming at the other guy, no, this is, this is a paintbrush. We're in a, we're in an art gallery. No, we're in a Coliseum. No, we're on a ship. No, this is a hose. We're in a village. And Buddha comes back and says, why are you guys all touching the elephant? Yeah. And so everyone's looking at it from a different perspective and they're, unable to see things or interpret things from another perspective because nobody's moving around. Nobody's trying to move around to get a different perspective on things. And a really good example of this that I heard was those really insane street art, where if you stand in one place, it's this super three-dimensional street art where you have this giant hole into hell or there's like a giant ocean beneath you and all the concrete's all cracked up. But if you move anywhere outside of this individual spot that lets you see the art you see how distorted it all is mm -hmm. and so i think that's what ends up happening within these conversations is people get so siloed that you're just stuck in this position 
and then you end up yelling at other people rather than being able to actually take in their perspective and try to add to your own perspective. And it's something that I find just so, I, th I think it's really emotionally difficult as well to move through perspectives because I, I go on TikTok, which I think is somewhat toxic because there's not <laughs> enough time to actually have discussion between people. And it turns yeah. out to be the TikToks are essentially, no, you're wrong. Let me show you why. And then at the end, another, no, you're wrong. So fuck off. And that's, that's what the whole video is. And going through them, I actually listen to different perspectives and I go, yeah, that's right. Definitely. That's absolutely right. But you have to be looking at it from a very particular perspective to have that idea is right. And then I think also think about my perspective and how to be right for myself. I'm actually in my own perspective. And so to incorporate all of these other perspectives, essentially just let me know that I'm wrong the majority of the time, which is why I enjoy having conversations with you is because we can actually break down ideas and move through them in a very open and free communication lens. And um, last summer, um, you know, your, the conversations I'm in and everything, I was really mad at white people. And it's not like I'm mad at you or I'm mad at my, my buddy or anything. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a weird concept that it was like, it was definitely, I was mad at the system that um, gives privilege to certain groups, yada, yada. But that doesn't really have, it's not really visible. It's not something you can see. So I, would, I was out in BC and I'm, I'm on the, on the ferry to the, going to the, um, Victoria and see all these huge mansions on these islands and knowing what I know about colonization and stuff. I'm just so mad at these people for having that. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. this was some, not even someone else's land. There were other people who took care of this land and now it's been turned into this, you know, and, um, being, I don't want to say whose family I was with, but I was with um, a white family uh, just just past weekend, and such loving, caring people, but also just the, some of the most racist shit being said at the table, and it's like it's such a complex like some of these ideas are exactly what I was fighting, protesting for against last summer. And at the same time, really loving, caring people are having, have these ideas and being able to separate the ideas someone has, their values, all these different things. Is, I, uh, I just got back, so I'm, I'm still processing it all. And it is very, yeah, it's very complex, man. And like you said, if you're only, you know, if I was only at one table, having the conversations at one table, yeah, I could be really mad at everything else. But now that I'm sitting at these different tables, which again is uh, another interesting thing, because I wonder if I was just a little darker, you know, um, talked a little little more different you know would these things still be happening around me 
um, or would I be hearing these things as comfortable as comfortably as they're saying them? If that makes sense. Yeah, you're a little bit of a secret agent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. And I've always had that. Um, it's funny being um, mixed race. My mom's white. My dad's Tongan. Um, in some instances, you know, you're. No, a lot of the time it was like I was the white guy with my Tongan family and then I was the Tongan guy with my white family. Um, and then on the other end, I feel that also I can relate to almost anyone that I talk to um, through experience. Um, so it's, it's, it is a unique position to be in. That, that point that you just made about feeling feeling like the Tongan person with your white family and the white person with your Tongan family that I, I read a, a few, a few months ago now, it's called the souls of black folk by W E B Du Bois. And he was the first PhD Harvard graduate. Mm -hmm. yep. He was the first black PhD Harvard graduate. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially the sociological journey through the South as it emerged from slavery. And he's going through as a teacher and recounting, the things that had happened to these families and why they were in this state of perpetual poverty. And a point that he makes early on in the book is that the black community is often in a purgatory between the decision of being black and living and being American essentially. Mm -hmm. And that really struck me. And I'm still not sure exactly why that struck me, but it, it, it really hit me deep and I'm still trying to figure out, why that hit me so deep and maybe why in my personal ignorance, I feel that there shouldn't be as much as of a, as a, of a disconnect between those two, but I understand that there is a disconnect between those two. And I would love to hear your perspective on that because that's something that, like I said, I'm still trying to work through it. I don't, I don't understand exactly what that means or why it made me feel the way that it did. Yeah. And um, so Ira Max Kendi, the best book I read it, I finished reading it right before we chatted and I was like, I need to talk to someone about this. And it was, um, it's called stamp from the beginning. Um, one of the best books I've ever read. And he has a whole, it follows five people through history from, um, the beginning of the Atlantic slave trade to, uh, Barack Obama. And, yeah, W. He has a whole. He follows five different people. I think the second guy is W. E. B. Du Bois, um, and it's quite heavy reading, so I don't remember everything from it. But you, you get a lot of ideas from it. But yeah, Du Bois talked about this dueling duality between being uh, being black and being American, um, and I've in some of the conversations we had with the UBIAA, we had a couple indigenous guys speaking and one of them was saying, you know, I struggle between, uh, he's, he's on the volleyball team at old saying like, I struggle holding on to my indigenous identity. And then I, I guess you would say Canadian. Mm -hmm. Um, and ideally, yes, we would like to be both or they would like to be one and be comfortable within each other. But being indigenous in Canada and how can you be proud to be Canadian or be
be comfortable in that when it's just not been it's still not okay or safe to do that in our society um i grow so growing up in new zealand it's interesting being in canada where people have no um prejudice against polynesians or pacific islanders because there's just none here so when i meet people they're kind of like what are you <laughs> like are you spanish or you know what i mean whereas in you growing up in new zealand i always so i went to a white middle school um and if you saw it you probably think it was a private school um we had gray uniforms you pull your socks up to your knees if they weren't up we had this deputy principal man mr crumpton and he would scream at you if your socks weren't up and i you used to put like an elastic band underneath the sock and then fold it over the top so that it wouldn't fall down mr crumpton i think he's still there and i really hope he's calmed down because that would, was not good for his blood pressure man that's such a totalitarian name it was not mr yeah. crumpton <laughs> mr crumpton yeah he's british too um and so i mean honestly by let's just say calgary standards the school my, that school is pretty diverse but still majority white and in a quite nice area of auckland and i always would try to make a point that i wasn't like those other islanders you know i would try to speak more white and um you know even put down islanders um i i i have big legs like i have big calves big quads and i always wanted my legs to be skinny like the white boys i thought it looked better you know it's just um it's 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 weird man and then i went to penrose high school which is like a, a decile two school um if you were white you were in the heavy minority like um yeah mostly islanders then we had a, a lot of um south asians or all types um and then i had to stop being so white because i was getting beaten up <laughs> you know um a little different in new zealand you, you know the, the duality i think in the states and with canada uh, actually no the maori in new zealand have the all very similar stories indigenous peoples um across the world so yeah it's tough i think we talked about it too you hardly ever see an indigenous person in canada with a canadian flag you know unless they played for canada it's like how that 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 flag for an indigenous person here just represents so much more than um national pride how can you be proud of that now we have all these um children turning up in in mass graves that indigenous people have been talking about or like or have known now we just have some statistics to go with it so yeah i definitely think that as it stands the idea of patriotism as an indigenous person they're they're very conflicting ideologies as you said how do you how are you patriotic of a colonial inquisition that came in and created or 
orchestrated mass genocides and particularly of the indigenous youth that yeah you're the 100 215 in Kamloops I'm not sure what the other ones are but I know that there are a lot of investigations going on that are going to turn up far more as the time goes on so I think that that's something that we really have to I just think there has to be conversation around that as well there has to be conversation between those two I talked to Dalton Sinoski and he's a he's a Métis teacher out of Saskatchewan and something that we touched on a little bit towards the end is the the civilization that we live in right now is likely the freest one of the freest that's ever existed and particularly in Canada and I mean North America in general Europe but there's no there's no outright slavery slavery's been around for the since the beginning of humankind essentially and we live in a very free time and we're the wealthiest that humans have ever been and there are all these things that are going so well for us and at the same time there are these things that are, they're horrible historic atrocities and ongoing ongoing oppression that continues to impact groups of people which it, it's tough to talk about those two in the same vein it's tough to say we're some of the luckiest human beings to exist right now in the place that we exist and also there are these horrible things that have happened and we have to reconcile that and we have to come to terms with those issues and we have to have an open discussion about them and we have to educate people on them and i think that so often people just throw themselves into one of those two groups either everything's great shut up and horrible things have happened and continue to happen and nothing is good i'm going to try this again i there was a there was a poem that I tried to read off when I was having my conversation with Dalton, and I'll try to do it again. It's by okay. Charles Dickens, and it's it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was a season of light, it was a season of darkness. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that the noisiest of its authorities insisted on its being perceived for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. And I think that that perfectly encapsulates the zeitgeist that we live in right now where people are on either side of that. And as you said in our last discussion, there's no, there's no touching of the circles of ideology right now. We're not, we're not at a Venn diagram. We're circles on either side of a spectrum and i think a big part of that might be language which is something that i wanted to touch on a little bit today and the language that we use and how it's evolving potentially faster than the emotion can catch up with it um you, it's funny that you brought up the um the state that we're in today because i had a buddy over and we have really just like you and i do we I'm, I just moved to Toronto. I've been here for a few months. And uh, in Greece, I had a guy um, who no matter what topic we were talking about, he would always take the other side and we would debate. And I just loved it. Yeah. And it's a little different here. My buddy Sia, he, uh, we have differing opinions on things and we just debate it out. And we're not going against each other. We're also just... Um, trying to just go somewhere we're just going somewhere with it you know what i mean and i 
we were talking i think we were talking about i don't know some marginalized group <laughs> pick one that's what we're talking about and uh he's like well you got to think that we're we're better off now than ever been before and i was like sure but i'm never going to be satisfied with that and he's like you're right we need both of those frames of thought and uh yeah you got to be grateful for for where we're at but you you just can't be satisfied with it and uh joe rogan had dave Chappelle on and um i fucking love dave Chappelle, man he rogan said the same thing like hey man we're you know we're better uh, i think steve pinker says or something where you know we're in terms of all these things we're better off than we've ever been mm-hmm. and david Chappelle was like yeah but you know there were people that got us there it didn't just happen yeah you know what i mean and it whether or not me or you do something today is probably still going to trend that way but there are important people that made it happen so totally i think it's it's like any healthy relationship with a friend your friend might have your friend might have come from the worst place ever and now they're just totally thriving you don't want your friend to stop you don't want your friend to just plateau okay you're doing great that's it stop you want your friend to keep going and i think a lot of that i think a lot of that increase or the the consistent improvement comes from the peaks and valleys that we experience you have to have some you have to have some bad days to have good days that's just how life goes and i think that might be a part of this whole thing is accepting the good and the bad days and one thing that i'm i'm having a guy on later this week to talk about cancel culture and what it means and the general idea that i've been trying to play with is what if we're wrong what if there are things that we're wrong about and by canceling voices by canceling perspectives we're actually taking those out of the playing field and making things far worse for ourselves in the long run because the momentary uncomfortability of changing our perspective on things is it's so easy to throw those away now and we have one common perspective one common narrative and if anything deviates from that we're so quick to throw it away as insane anti-science racist any of those things and what if those ideas are actually the things that could elevate us to bring us to a higher place? And so that's something that I'm very concerned about, especially as of late. There's a, I've been following the lab leak hypothesis slash vaccine safety versus different means of treating for COVID or preventing COVID. And it seems more and more that the things that were six months a year a week ago the things that were crazy anti-science are potentially the things that were are also right and now we're having to recorrect recorrect in such a drastic manner that what's the what's the cost of all that i think that's the that's the inevitable question that comes along with what if we're what if we're wrong is what is the cost how many lives is it worth how many how many trillions of dollars is it going to be worth because trillions of dollars also equals quality of life for lots of people. So I think those are the questions that I've been trying to wrestle with lately. And I definitely think that you're one of the people that can help to bring a nuanced perspective to those for me. Yeah, man. What, what is, so you, so you mentioned uh, s- some COVID related stuff. What are some things that you've seen 
that are re like you know coming back and like we were wrong yeah so the lab leak hypothesis is one thing in and i, I think that the Okay, definitely lab leak hypothesis, not lab leak theory, not proven at all. There still needs to be way more investigation to go into this. But and sorry, that's that the um, that it came from that lab in Wuhan, right? Yeah. So there, so, okay. there, there are two gain of function research labs in the world. One of them being in Wuhan, the other one being in America, and the idea that this lab likely came out of this virus likely came out of that lab because it. Number one, we haven't been able to find any natural, uh, like a natural origin. Mm -hmm. And that the fact that it was just immediately taken off the table as a hypothesis is frightening enough. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's now turning around and saying, well, this is actually quite likely. And regardless of who's responsible for this, I don't think that matters as much as the understanding of we're essentially souping up super viruses and there's obviously not a lot of regulation on that. So mm -hmm. the fact that that's happening is actually the key problem. It's not who did this, what do they owe us, any of that, any of that bullshit. I don't care about that. It's we're creating things that could potentially destroy an entire global economy because that's what we have now and we have to deal with that. We have a global economy and it can destroy a global economy, ruin lives for millions of people, kill millions of people, actually probably ruin the lives of billions of people in terms of economics, and then kill millions of people. So we're, we're doing this. Now we have to come to terms with that and speak to each other honestly about what we're going to do about that. Is it worth it? Maybe, possibly. How do, we, how do we move forward with that? So that's my perspective on that is we actually have to have a, a reasonable conversation regarding what the safety is of this, whether it's worth it. And all of that comes from just a place of honesty. Are we willing to have a discussion about this thing? And are we willing to put every hypothesis onto the table and then eliminate them as they are fit to eliminate? Or are we willing to say, no, this thing's completely wrong. We're not going to test it. We're not going to look into it. Totally wrong. Get it out of here. So I think that's one thing that worries me. Another one is the Emerge, so there's a, there's a prophylactic called ivermectin, and it was found in the microbiome of soil in Japan. And what ivermectin does is, so it's a prophylactic, so it is a, it's something that you use to negate being infected by a virus. And it's been used in Africa to treat river blindness for the past 40 years. And the places where it is used in Africa have far lower COVID mortality rates. And I'll, I'll put all of the websites to this in the show notes so that I, I actually have something backing me up. But it seems to be that this is safe, number one, because it has a history of over 40 years. So we know that it's not going to have long-term impacts down the road. I actually, I suspect that I'll, this will probably get pulled off of YouTube because it's part of the YouTube guidelines that you can't mention ivermectin in, oh. in terms of treating COVID. Yeah. So, and then there are also these charts of the point at which ivermectin becomes available to the broader society. And 
the the death rate and infection rate just nosedives. It's unbelievable seeing these things. So there's there's potential that this thing is able to treat or help so that people don't contract COVID in the first place. And if they do contract COVID, the long-term damage is significant. Another thing is, I think that the left and the right argue this point far more, but vaccine safety versus COVID damage. And number one, I'm so pro-vaccines, it's not even funny. I have, I have more vaccines than I, than I would guess that most people have. Like I've been to Southeast Asia, didn't ask a question, just put that into my arm, let's go. The fact that this is a newer technology and people are touting that it's safe, whether it actually harms in the long term is a different question from it being safe. And so I think, number one, you don't want COVID. I think that that's going to have long-term impacts because of what it does to the respiratory system and the damage it causes in the respiratory system. I would suspect over the next 40 years, the rates of COPD in the elderly populations is going to skyrocket. Number one, because of vapes. So that's something that we would maybe have to control for, but also the damage that COVID does on body tissue. So you don't want COVID. You don't want to risk getting COVID. That's still something that I'm pretty confident about. And at the same time, we don't really know about vaccine safety, especially with a new vaccine with a novel technology. I think this is the deadliest vaccine we've ever distributed. I think this vaccine has more deaths in six months than any other vaccine in the past 30 years, or all vaccines in the past 30 years. I think that might be it. I will link to a big article where a guy puts all of this data together. And essentially, nobody will, well, nobody will talk about these things. As I said with ivermectin, it's being censored on YouTube. So that's, that's part of the issue is what happens if we're wrong about these things? And I might be wrong. I would be so willing to admit that I'm wrong. I would actually be unbelievably happy to admit that I'm wrong about these things if I am wrong about these things down the road. But what if we're not wrong? And by limiting people's availability to information and limiting free speech, we're actually digging ourselves into a hole. And I, I don't know, I've, I've looked through history one or two times and I can't find any instance where large scale censorship has turned out well. Yeah, um, so the, the lab leak, um, I watched a video from The Economist on YouTube and they were talking about it too and that a big reason that it wasn't looked into more was because of the, the racist comments Trump was making. You know, this is a China virus, yada, yada. <laughs> and you're kind of right about this um, cancel culture stuff or, you know, that's one instance where um, in, the, in the intention not to offend anyone, we became almost anti-scientific you know what i mean um and that is definitely one huge backfire from all this too um and that i you know we try our best or i try my best to think critically but you you have your your biases and you have 
your intuition, which is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately um, in terms of sport, in terms of everything, what is intuitive? What, what do I do without really thinking? And what am I actually um, processing and, and thinking about? any of these conversations, it is really hard. Even when you, you're starting to talk about um, vaccine stuff, I can even just feel myself naturally being like, is he an anti-vaxxer? Like, do we have to go? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and it, it I, is, I feel it too. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm saying it and I feel it. Yeah, and it's really hard to, to separate the emotion from, from it. That's just human though. Mm -hmm. And you hit on a really good point there. Number one, the lab leak being nuxed because Trump believed it and Trump was talking about the China virus. And that's one thing that I, I, I think that the, the term, I, so I read, uh, I read how to be an anti-racist and I thought it was, a, I thought, I thought Kendi did a good job at presenting ideas and moving through them. I definitely think that he's in his own place and I thought that he, I thought there were a few things that I didn't like. I thought there were things that I liked, there were things that I didn't like. One of the things yeah, that I didn't like was yeah, his, the, the idea of racism being totally black and white. Mm -hmm. And even that's, I've, I, haven't, I haven't heard a lot about this, but Tom Hanks being more or less canceled for not being anti-racist enough, not being racist, but not also being anti-racist. So that idea of a dichotomy between something being totally racist or not racist. And the evolution of the term racist, I think has evolved in writing faster than it's evolved in emotion. So this idea that if, so the idea that Trump's saying, this is like the Chinese virus. I don't, I don't think that that's racist. And that's something that I actually really wanted to ask you about because we talked last, last time we talked, we discussed that idea of language and the left and the right just not having the same language at all. They say the same things. They're saying this is racist. And then, so let's say MSNBC says this is racist. And then Fox says, that's not racist. That's crazy. And I, I actually wanted to know what your perspective was on that because I thought what Kendi did from a psychological perspective was a little bit short-sighted because that is such a significant word in our language and the history behind that word is so significant. It's the same with, I'm going to use the word because I feel that it's important, but the, the word fag. So in, in junior high, whatever I would, I would, my friends and I would call each other that, that was just a part of the, what we were, what we were doing. And it wasn't disparaging gay people. It was saying, you suck. You're the worst. I wasn't telling my friend that he was a homosexual. I was saying, you suck. And as a culture, we didn't, we didn't move fast enough out of what the history of that word was. And now I haven't heard that word. And besides me saying, and I haven't heard that word in like 10 years. Dude, I heard it a lot over this week. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, I just told you, I went on a little trip. Yeah. I was with, yeah. So, and it hit me, man. I was like, Whoa. Even saying it, I, I get uncomfortable. Like I'm, I used to fling this word around like that, and it's crazy that yeah. Now I now I feel well, that way. Yeah. Right. Well, so I'm curious. Were you were you disparaging your friends for being homosexuals? 
um, when I was younger. Mm-hmm. No, but um, the the it's like calling someone a pussy. What are you saying? You have they have a vagina and that they're a woman, and then that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. This is how I do the steps, and it's kind of the same thing using that word. Like, mm-hmm. what is the origin? You're saying someone's like being gay. You know what I mean? Oh, that's gay. Like, um, was the in, what it's what it comes down to with a lot of these things is intention and outcome. And was was your intention to be homophobic? No, but um, if a gay person was around, which they often were, and were in the closet, and a huge reason was because of that behavior and that talk, you know. Um, just because your intention wasn't doesn't mean that it didn't have a huge outcome for someone I think it just being straight and just fling that around is so easy for us um, but it has such a big impact on someone else on someone else's entire life um, one thing I struggled with and I still struggle with Kendi's um, definitions is that it is totally outcome based, and I, I this is a total philosophical question and stuff. But basically, from my understanding, is that anything that has an outcome of racial inequity is racist. Is how he kind of redefined the term. Mm-hmm. So, if you look at Trump calling it the the China virus, um like we have the Spanish flu and I don't think it even started in Spain. I mean, yeah. So, okay. Surface level, is it calling it the Chinese virus or the China virus racist? No, but a lot of the outcome, a lot of what happened after that and what we're still seeing is a lot of anti Asian hate and, and abuse. And I, I can't, I can't see that not being amplified. It might've happened anyway, but Trump using that term surely, surely amplified that hate and that abuse and that racism. Um, so I don't know. I, my, my initial reaction, my intuitive reaction was that's racist and um, not because of that small speck that thing he said, but Trump is a racist. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to not like, it's hard for me to remove that him saying these things when he is a proven racist. You know what I mean? Right. Okay. So, and and then like, sorry for throwing so much stuff at you. I know that, but, I know that. This no, is no, no, dude, I'm, I'm open to it. There Perfect. are people who, yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. This Don't is, worry. Yeah. I, <laughs> So that's that's what I'm trying to figure out is when. So so the, let me recount the point you're making and correct me if I'm wrong because mm. I'm liable to be, but. Regardless of what the, actual statement is. Sometimes there are, consequences derived from that statement, which, inevitably turn out to be racist in action. Mm-hmm. So in that example, Trump saying the Chinese virus after there's a large spike in anti-Asian 
hate crime. And be, so because of the inevitable consequence, then that initial statement turns out to be racist. And, that, and that's what I'm trying to figure out is what, whether there's a, another term to be used because the term racist has such significant connotations to it. It's similar to what we talked about with Robin D'Angelo, where in her book, White Fragility, if you walk into a room and tell every single white person that they're inherently racist because of the society we've been raised in and born into, I, I would consider myself to be a pretty open-minded person. And I have, I, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to go off on myself, but if someone says, if someone calls me a racist, I'm instantly on my toes. Like I'm, I'm pulled back. It's that similar emotional reaction to the F word that I said earlier. Like it makes me tighten up inside because of, because when I think of racism, I think of redlining, Jim Crow, lynching, and to be thrown into that because of the color of my skin as, as a white person, that makes me, that, that makes me tense up a lot. And I, I'd, I'd love to know your perspective on that and whether yeah. I'm being, whether I'm being fragile. Um, yes and no, I, I guess, but to your point, I guess doing that can hurt the cause, right? If you're, if you're just going to do that and say that, Hey, you're white, you're racist. Um, yeah, I, I guess outcome based probably is less likely to get that person in on the movement. But when you try it, like, I wouldn't even bother trying to tell that to, it's a nice problem to have yeah. as a white person. This is what yeah. I'm trying to, you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, when you get on this, like, Hey, they have it worse, but that, then, then these people have it even worse. And then when you mix these intersections, they have it. We, a big thing I got from our last talk was that we need to be working together and we, yeah, the language, but the language is really important, man. Um, right. The, the word racist is, yeah, it's very loaded and has changed over time uh, to, to D'Angelo and Candy's uh, points i guess we definitely do need to redefine the word and i i think words get redefined all the time they evolve just as as we do and interesting you talking earlier that um things evolve differently through writing than they do through us actually saying them mm -hmm. and um do we need a new word oh, that's a that's that's an idea i a big a big part of anti-racism though is being comfortable calling things racist um even candy says i don't call them microaggressions anymore i just call them racial abuse I call them for what i call it for what it is yeah, maybe when you're coupling huge things like Jim Crow and then uh, smaller things, 
definitely smaller things, you know, in the workplace and you put them all in the same umbrella term, maybe that hurts the cause too. I don't know. Well, that's wrong. And I've, I've been thinking about this for a long time because mm. as I said, there's, there's an emotional gravity to a word and the word racist is like the sun right now. Yeah. That, that word has a lot of, and, and I totally understand. I think that that is something to the credit of D'Angelo and Kendi is that we actually, I don't think we have a word to, I don't, I don't think that we have a word that properly describes the feeling that should maybe be encapsulated when people feel microaggressions or they feel subjugated in the workplace or they feel as if they're a marginalized person. Because as I said, microaggressions and lynching, to me, when you put those into the umbrella of racist, if someone calls me a racist for a microaggression that maybe I'm not aware of, then, as I said, I feel that that deep tightening within my stomach, and I go, "Whoa, mm -hmm. that's a that's a that's a big word. That's a really big word." And I think that also happens with words like systemic. I've been trying to think a lot about whether I believe that racism is systemic, and I think that there are issues that we deal with in society that maybe not even issues because God, what's the best way to put this? One of the ideas with Kendi as it being black and white. And if there's not, if there's not equity and outcome, so everyone garners the same outcome, then it must be racist policy. I think that, that idea gets, I think there's just so much nuance to that. One argument that I heard was the average age of, of, of African-Americans, black people is about 27. And the average age of white people is around 40 something. So the idea that there's more wealth within the white community would make sense from that perspective. The older you get, the more wealthy you get. Also the fact that the majority of professional basketball players are black that also makes sense from that perspective and so i don't think either of those are inherently racist ideas i think that there's i think that there is a discrepancy if you control for everything dig really deep down i do think that there that white people have an inherent privilege of a few percent and so i think that's something definitely to address but to paint everything that there's if there's no equity and outcome to paint that as systemic racism is I think that really piggybacks on the term racism because systemic would insist that it's central. It is a, a part of the society in, inherently. And the argument that I'm trying to make is that I think that it's more towards the, the extremities of society that there's racism. And whether there's racism within individuals, within humans, I don't, I don't, I, I couldn't disagree. I see racism all the time not just towards black people from white people, but I also see it in my, my brown friends and my, my black friends. I think that there's lots of racism to go around. And what I've been more concerned with is disparity and discrimination. That's something that I'm a little bit more focused on now is how, how do we figure that out rather than racism? Because racism isn't someone's, that's in someone's mind. I can't really reach into someone's head and pull that out. Yeah, and and this um, the individual stuff, people's uh, views and opinions. I'm not really 
I mean, you know how hard it would be to just go to every person and, you know, uh, the people in my direct circle though. Yeah. I will probably put effort into that if I'm seeing them, you know, my family, that sort of thing. Um, or I'll find a new circle, <laughs> but, um, I, I struggle to see racism not being systemic, um, based on, on the history of, let's just say North America. And so the, the argument is a lot of the arguments. Um, I listened to, uh, what's his name? He's on Rogan a lot. He's Jewish. Um, the younger guy talks real fast, conservative, uh, Tim pool. Oh, Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro. And I like to listen to guys like that because they um, have complete different views from me. And I, I like to argue, argue with them by myself yeah. in my head. And yeah, that's what we do. You and I pretty well, I think. Mm -hmm. um, his, one of his arguments was that we're at a point where everything is equal opportunity wise what do we need to do moving forward i just like i just can't see that i i don't see that in our society and i just don't think we one of his things is we got to stop talking about the past and just go on, on to the future like yes there's places for you to talk about it but i don't want to hear it what do we have to do to move forward um but I mean, redlining wasn't that long ago. Jim Crow wasn't that long ago. Those were part of the system. Yes, they're gone now, but you know, probably the, the biggest system in place would be in America, uh, mass incarcerate, incarceration of black men. Yeah. And you know, you can put that on. I will say I do struggle with Kendi's binaries. Uh, whether you call them false binaries or not. So I do struggle with saying if you're not anti-racist, then you're racist because by doing nothing, you're participating in a system that uh, of, of white supremacy, basically. And I, I think that's kind of a fundamental philosophical argument, whether you agree with that or not. Um, I don't know what I think of that um i think i'm biased towards agreeing with it but yeah so but but then again you're just changing the definition of the term mm -hmm. and i just went on a total tangent i forgot what we were talking about uh you had brought up ben shapiro in i was talking about systemic racism because my my oh, perspective is that it's yeah. a little bit towards the fringes of society rather than yeah. right in the center of everything well, so, so North America from the beginning of colonization has been created, our society, the way we live has been created um, around whiteness. So the closer in proximity you are to whiteness, the more likely you are to be six, what we, what our society defines as successful. Mm -hmm. So if you live in a collectivist culture, which is um, a lot of people of color, you're less likely to succeed. I think you're less, um, 
let's take coaching for example mm -hmm. when you coach um when i coach white kids in calgary they i know they have a bit of money because i know what they pay for these bloody camps right some of them not all of them but a lot of them particularly in calgary they love when you kind of hey josh did great today you see he was killing balls like um you're the player of the day yada yada awesome club club i want to do that i want a bit more individualist right if you do that i i, I coached um with dallas and chris up in um, northern ontario in a remote reserve and you can't do that with those kids because they get embarrassed like you're you're singling me out from the collective now you know what i mean mm -hmm. and you you can see kids and and this is the same um in a lot of indigenous cultures when you do that you might see over the next couple of days that kid will purposely underperform to not be singled out like that again um so just kind of to that point of, of systemic the current system that we are in which is a hard thing to um, visualize it doesn't look like anything really rewards you for being for being as close as you can to whiteness and so that's that's how i struggle with it not being systemic is if you're not participating in that then you are much less likely to succeed very interesting with the with the collectivist groups being actually embarrassed if you if you, if you get a, a piece of paper and you give it to someone in the collective society and you ask them to lay out a web of the people in their lives and their significance by drawing bigger circle for someone that's more significant very rarely will they put themselves into the center whereas if you do that with someone from an individualistic culture they'll put themselves in the center right away big circle so i find that very interesting that that was something that you observed and something you said towards the end there was the idea of individuality being more more propped up by the idea of whiteness and that's something that i've also been thinking a lot about lately is what what does whiteness mean because i've i've heard that a ton this is this is white uh, things being on time math uh studying all of those being ideas of white culture and so tell tell me if i'm wrong and just comment on this but you your idea is that whiteness is actually an or individualistic society is inherently derived from white culture yeah good question i from what i know where where else do you see it the individual In, individual society yeah good question yeah you know great question and um actually talking to my buddy the same buddy who we kind of debate and he's um afghan his parents um immigrated here from afghanistan a while ago and you hear this a lot from immigrant parents of color um you'll be coming white you know he's super into his job he's quite successful moving his way up and his dad's like 
whiteness is i don't know if you i don't think you can take it too literally it is an, an idea mm -hmm. but what does whiteness mean to let's just say um an indigenous person before white people came everyone was brown colonization happened and the whiter it got the worse it got for them yeah you know what i mean brought in stripped them cultural genocide um residential schools took them from their land gave them barren land said here yeah, these are your reserves um i know from from personal experience uh it so my point is a big part of whiteness is, is loss of culture and i'd love to talk to you about do white people have culture and stuff too that'd be a fun little tangent to go on um but a tough thing i know for my for my dad who's tongan um, raised in tonga moved to australia when he was 18 on a scholarship um had me at 19 with my with my mom i now have an anglo-saxon name uh i don't speak our language there's other reasons that come of that but um definitely my dad in tongan we say balangi anyone my my own family in tongan in tonga will be like balangi come here it means balangi means it's like um what's the mexican word for uh, a white person gringo gringo yeah is gringo offensive i don't i don't know i'm i'm not really bought into all that stuff so you you can um, call me gringo i call myself a honky <laughs> all the time with, with yeah. landon landon curry anytime i do something super white i just call myself a honky yeah yeah so you know um it's a huge reason i'm moving back to new zealand for a bit in september is to reconnect with my culture and um you know my girlfriend and i my girlfriend's white and you know we we talk about the future having kids that sort of thing and a big important thing for me is for my kids to have a tongan name tongan first name because even though um they probably won't look that tongan even just having a tongan my last name latuila pronounced properly latuila um that's still part of my identity and you know i've gotten tattoos and stuff which um is more pacific the when the missionaries came to tonga they actually abolished um, tattooing and, and a lot of our culture um which is now seeing a resurgence a lot of tongans are trying to refine that art and and tattoo themselves um, but it was all orally passed down so uh, they're just doing what they think it would look like yeah you know i want my kids to have tongan names and and i think that somewhat pushes you towards even just the way people um act around you like your name sione or your name in tongan would be um sosiwa and be siwa what does that mean you know it's oh i'm tongan you know i don't look it but yeah sorry i went off on a tangent again man but no 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 that's that's what we're here for just dive <laughs> yeah. deep. Well, half, half the time i have no idea what i'm talking about so i'm gonna i'm gonna cite a little bit of data for you and I just want you to tell me what you think about it. There's a UBC psychologist, he died a few years ago, but he was researching 
indigenous youth suicide. And I think this might be the fifth time I brought this up on my podcast. So sorry to anyone listening and getting a little bit tired of it, but I think it's number one, unbelievable. And number two, super important. So Michael J. Chandler was the researcher and he was looking into indigenous youth suicide and found that 10% of the bands carried the burden of 90% of indigenous youth suicide. And the bands increasingly as the suicide rate got lower and lower, the consistencies between the bands that had few to no, to no suicides were cultural practices such as language, dance, art, some form of self-governance, having a heavier hand within their policing forces. So having their own, having, having their own people do security or things along those lines. And I, I was trying to figure out for a long time whether culture actually mattered because when I was younger, I was uh, very, very taken by the communist ideology. I was a total communist, very, very, the furthest left you could go. And, and that was something that I thought of a lot because that's a part of the, the communist doctrine would be to over time eliminate religion and eliminate forms of culture. And you end up just having a bunch of people with no culture and they're all common. And reading this research, I started to understand more and more how much culture actually matters. And I was actually looking into resiliency on the larger scale. And my focus was on black youth in America and indigenous youth in Canada and the factors that contributed to resiliency and later on success and maybe success would be by me to find within that individualistic culture of being highly educated and having a family getting having a having a complete family that stays together and having a golden retriever exactly yeah little roger you have a you have a bandana around his neck yeah so those were so that was that was my that was my realization was culture matters far more than anyone would have thought and it matters a lot and to your question of whether white people have culture i think that we're so steeped in it that people don't have individual white culture so i'm i'm scottish irish ukrainian and i'm a, i'm a big mutt but i don't know a lot about those and something that we were talking about a little bit actually we talked about this before we started the recording but being within my past two significant others have had really great family units. And that's something that I missed out on as a child. And so feeling that is a different type of love. And then feeling cultural love is another different type of love that I think that lots of people, lots of white people miss out on a lot because you're born into this larger patriotic society and you don't get to hold on to things as much because you just blend into what everyone else is doing. So I had friends when I was growing up that were my, my, my buddy, Ryan Nautiker, he had big German roots, but they never really celebrated that. And so you feel this tie more to your country than you do to your ancestors, which I think is detrimental in the long term or even in the short term, no matter how you look at it, because the people that I know that actually have their family history, they know where they came from, who their ancestors were. I think that they have such a deep tie into themselves that I don't know. I think it gives a lot to people. And I think that you're right. I think that white people don't have cultures outside of their country at large. I mean, if you're American, you're just American. If you're Canadian, you're Canadian. 
there's no, it, it's not something that we're trying to hold on to as more minority groups are. I see, I see minority groups that have, they, they practice their cultural traditions and they hold on to it. They really dig their fingernails into it because it, it matters. It means something to them and it should. And I don't think it matters enough to a lot of people and people that are espousing the idea that we should abolish culture. I think that they don't understand how dangerous that is. Dude, I really wanted to talk to you about this on my podcast, but I guess we'll just... <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll no, no. Yeah. Um, well, okay. You're a perfect example of this. So I think um, there are white people in Europe that are, you know, whatever, Irish. I think there's definitely Irish culture, blah, blah, blah. There's always a double-edged sword with racism and that it also... If, this woman, I, I, I can't remember her name, but she wrote a book uh, not too long ago. And it was about the myth that racism is a zero sum game. And that if we stop it for, um, you know, if black people stop suffering, then surely that means white people are going to start. Right. And that's, um, she, mm -hmm. she writes all of these uh, interesting ideas about why that's not true. Um, I listened to Candy on uh, the Armchair podcast, and I forgot who runs that. And he he talked about the the porn industry and the this racist idea that um, all black guys have these huge dicks and you know yada yada, and then that like they're over sexualized, and yeah, that I it goes without saying that that hurts black people um but there is also the side effect that uh, a lot of white men feel that they are under sexual and that they can't quote unquote compete with you know and I, i've seen I've, dude i've seen it at sate where you know the guys on my team are who i was one of two people of color the other being jeff carius um we're just so intimidated by the basketball team on many different levels, but particularly with girls. Uh, and so it hurts. It, it, it's not a zero sum game. It, it hurts um, both sides, but I, the, the idea of whiteness uh, in our society gives you um, privileges. Um, but it, the flip side of that is also stripped um white people of culture and i i wanted to chat to you because you yearn that as a human being and i know you went to to asia and i i, I can't help but kind of couple that with the need for some some culture that 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 yearning did you find that there or did it help you is that even am i even on the right god train no, of you're, thought? you're on that's such a good question number one that idea is something that i've never thought about before what the impact of racism is on white people in terms of the loss of culture that is such a great point and something that like i said i've never come close to thinking about that so that's that's amazing thanks a lot for that Jeez, that's why i'm here man third time be, right yeah, I'm, gonna be, I'm gonna be up all night thinking about that one um my mom used to take me to temples when I, when I was young, she wanted to, my, my grandparents on my dad's side would bring me to church every Sunday. 
So I'd always went to church every Sunday. And I think in a little bit of a, in some, in some way to avoid me being solely Christian and brainwashed in the Catholic religion, my mom would take me to lots of different religious sites. So she would take me to temples and something that I connected with really heavily was Buddhism. And I, I talk a lot to my friend Randy about this because he is a philosophy English major. So a lot of the philosophy that he's grown up with is Western European. And a lot of the philosophy that I ended up growing up with was Eastern. So I think the way that I, that I actually think and operate is more as a collective individual. So I find myself to, there are lots of tests that you can do to see whether you think collectively or individualistically. One of them being, if I were to say monkey, horse, banana, what of those two would you pair? Monkey and banana. I'm an individualist. Oh God. I think that that actually means collectivist. Okay. I think maybe uh, don't quote me on that. It was uh, there. There were a few of them that I read from "Behave" by okay. Robert Sapolsky, and so that was one of those. And I, I actually ended up being far more skewed to the collectivist. And so I think that a part of that is that I was absolutely enthralled by Eastern tradition and Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion. And me going over there, it felt like I was at home. The way that, the way that people talked to each other and communicated and talked about ideal. I remember at one point I was in a temple and one of the monks came over and we started talking about this piece of art and after a while he kind of looked at me and I, he started to speak in the native tongue and i was like what the hell is happening and he's like oh i thought you were from here like i there aren't very many there aren't very many very many white people that actually know about this stuff we were talking about the like the the auspicious symbols in buddhism and all these things that are pretty esoteric and it takes a while to learn about them. And there were things that I just loved. So I, I knew about them. And so I really felt that that was me connecting with my culture. But at the same time, there are tons of other people that are essentially floating through the void without any culture or any inkling of culture, which I think is a big reason as to why lots of people dive so heavily into, I would say it's kind of pseudo Eastern tradition. Mm -hmm. Things like yoga and yeah, yeah. Thing, things that can endow some sense of spirituality and connection to something higher. And I think that's becoming more and more popular in the West because people don't grow up with a larger culture outside of their family. And mm -hmm. so they're like, we, we yearn for it. We want storytellers. And I think that that's something that's also disappeared. I'm talking to a, arguably one of the best storytellers in the world. He's won tons of storytelling competitions and all these other things and I'll, I'll be talking to him within the next couple of weeks and that's something that I want to pick his brain about is what is the what's the consequence of losing religion because religion is a large umbrella for culture mm -hmm. and that that is that's essentially what western culture is is a offshoot of judeo-christianity and so we're steeped in that but we also don't have it because we don't have the actual religion to go along with the culture so now we just have the culture saying acting out the things that the religion once said. So now we have an action without word. And I think that that's detrimental because without word, without storytelling, where do we find ourselves? Where do we land? And I, I really think that we're witnessing the death and hopefully rebirth of storytelling 
And that's something that I found interesting about Jordan Peterson was his ability to tell stories. And I know him far more as a, as an educator than a political commentator. When I was in my fourth year of university, he, I was in a personality course and the teacher that I had was unqualified to teach the course. So I ended up being frustrated, went home, looked up a lecture series for that personality course. And it turned out this random dude that sounded like Kermit the Frog was teaching this course. And so I started listening to it and went, oh, this is good. This is really good. And then I think six months later, a year later, it turns out that this guy, you, whatever, he's been politicized and there's all this controversy going on around him. And I, it was so strange to me because this dude's just a master storyteller, a master speaker. And obviously tons of people that are, that feel that they've been disenfranchised by society are now going to this man. And he's a father figure for tons of people. And I think that people just hunger for it. I don't think we understand how much we actually want storytelling, how much we want to hear about the, the intricate underlying of a story. The structure is one thing. The structure is the thing that we really want, but it's the, the thing on top of that, the thing that we see that brings it to life. But, and we talked a little bit about movies last time and that form of storytelling. And we talked about how it could potentially be painting a picture for the black community that is not supportive because everyone has to be extraordinary. And I think that's something about storytelling that's unbelievably useful is the call to be extraordinary. And it's something that you almost can't live up to. You can't be Harry Potter. You can't be Samwise Gamgee in Lord of the Rings carrying some dude up a mountain and throwing the ring into the pit of fire, destroying all evil. But you can strive for it. And I think that's something we've lost. Dude, maybe maybe that's a big reason podcasts are so popular right now. <laughs> we've lost that... Uh... Not a lot. Yeah, we're yearning for that too. Um, man, that's another thing I can't wait for. Going back to New Zealand is just being with my aunties, uncles, and hearing stories about the islands back when they were growing up. And um, that's a huge, really important part of of uh, of my culture is storytelling. Um, who is who? How do you get an award for storytelling? No idea. Can't okay. wait to ask him. Yeah, we'll save that then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'll be good. I'm not, I'm not sure though, because yeah, I know that he's a he's an atheist, but he's working at some kind of church that mm -hmm. people from all different religions they all come to this place and just tell stories, which I think is the coolest concept ever because you can yeah. take there's so many different cultures that afford the opportunity to tell different lessons through their storytelling. Mm -hmm. I recently read the, the Bhagavad Gita, which is an old Hindu scripture. And the storytelling was, it's so complex implicitly, but essentially the whole story is just, so there's Arjuna and he's the head of an army. And then on the other side of the army, there's this, he has family in that army. He has his teachers, he has his family in that army. And he, him and Sri Krishna and Krishna is the, the operating figure of the Godhead. So he's the, he's the personality of the Godhead. 
and they ride their chariot into the middle of these two armies. And essentially at that point, the whole world gets put on pause because Arjuna has to make a decision whether he wants to, whether he's willing to kill people on the other side. And Krishna and him have this dialogue and it's a moralistic dialogue. And it's all in this, it's all in this idea of religion, but all of it's a moral, it's a huge moralistic storytelling. And towards the end, there was this really good quote that I liked a lot. And I talked about it with Trevor Reagan a little bit. And it was that, that which in the beginning is like poison, but in the end is like nectar and awakens one to self-realization is said to be happiness in the mode of goodness. And that's such a complex idea. Mm. You're talking about sacrifice and what it means to commit to something, giving your time to it and over time get better at it. It's the point Can you repeat that for me, bro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that which in the beginning is like poison and in the end is like nectar is said to be happiness. Oh, sorry. I'll, I'll restart. I missed a part there. That which in the beginning is like poison, but in the end is like nectar and awakens one to self-realization is said to be happiness in the mode of goodness. Hmm. And so I, I think what, what that idea is going for is that when you first start off at something, you're going to be bad at it. And as you work towards it, you get better at it. So when you start, it sucks. That's poison. As you work towards that, it gets easier and you get better. And then it's fun. That's, the, that's that idea of nectar, something that mm -hmm. sustains the soul. And by going through that, you actually wake yourself up to what you're capable of. Because so often we quit things right at the beginning once we start them if we're not good at them. And by doing that, you find happiness. And if you're able to put yourself out there and move towards a goal, then that's goodness for the, the, the broader scale of things. If you get good at something and you are able to allocate your talents to the people that you love, then that's goodness in the form of society. And it's also happiness in the form of the individual. And so that's an unbelievably complex four lines of text if you psychoanalyze that. But at the same time, it's just a part of a story. And this whole story is just full of these things. And I think that's something that we miss out on. I think it's, I think it's very unfortunate that we don't have that anymore. That's heavy, man. That... My uh, initial reaction to hearing that is, is volleyball for me. Um, fuck, dude. I, I, I ask myself all the time, um, why do I like? Why do I play volleyball? Why do I love it? And sometimes I'll go to all the connections I've made, all the people, you know, I've now I've traveled all across the world. I've made insane relationships with people. Um, I've felt all these emotions, all this stuff. And then sometimes I'm like, I just fucking love hitting a volleyball. I like, I just like it. Yeah. <laughs> like we always like want to put a lot of meaning into things. And then sometimes I'm just like, I just like to ball out on Tuesdays and Saturdays at Woodbine beach. And yeah. that's it. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, uh, I hope this, I hope this helped people. I hope that we can, that our conversations are actually valuable in some way. I definitely think they are. I think, yeah. I think, I think that free and open communication is something that we need and your willingness to sit down with me and talk about these things just means an absolute ton to me because I get to work through the outskirts of my understanding of things and you just blow them wide open and blow <laughs> my mind every time. 
it goes both ways, but it goes both ways. And uh, a million things I wanted to talk to you about, so we can save it when I have you on. Yeah, on I'd love Dal to. Noir. Yeah. There was there was one thing that I wanted to bring up, but I think that we can wait for next time. It's about a. I think that the way that the Aruna Kiliani story is being handled mm-hmm. is actually how I would prefer. So I guess we can talk about that really quickly. Sure. Yeah. And hopefully we don't we don't end up going for six hours. But I also <laughs> I also wouldn't be opposed to that. I'm not doing much today. So for I guess I can catch. I, I don't even have to speak to the audience. I can just catch you up on this. So Aruna yeah. Kiliani is a she's she has her PhD and she gave a talk at Yale. And in this lecture, the lecture was called the psychopathic problem of the white mind. And in this lecture, she had a few lines that were questionable at best. And along the lines of uh, one of them being probably should have written the quotes down, but I'll, I'll post a link to Barry Weiss's Substack where she talks about this. And one of them was that she had fantasies about unloading a revolver into the face of a white person and then walking away guilt-free, wiping the blood off her hands. Another one was that all white people are bad apples. And regardless of what I think about what she said, I think that number one, Gail won't post the lecture, which I think is a little bit of cowardice because the actual- That's where I can't find it. Yeah, yeah, okay. no. Okay. So Yale, yeah, so there's one person that had it recorded. It's really mm. bad audio. You can't mm. speed it up or anything and listen to it. It's really bad audio. So Yale won't release it, which I find I, I don't like that because mm-hmm. the actual lecture wants it released and she wants a copy of it, but they won't give it to her. Number one, I think that people should be able to listen to this just to understand mm-hmm. what's happening in universities and how this is actually a perspective that's taken very seriously. Number two, I think that how it's being handled in the media is how all issues should be handled in the media, where people are having her on and actually letting her discuss her perspective. And she's able to explain what she means, where she's coming from. And whether I agree with her perspective or not, that's one thing. But whether I think that she should have the opportunity to speak about these things. Initially, I had a reaction, which was along the lines of, why is this human being allowed to speak mm-hmm. at universities? if if you supplement the word white with any other, mm-hmm. any other group at all, it's immediately, that's hate speech. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's crazy. But I think that allowing her to actually talk about her perspective on things, it opens up a whole field of discussion as to how people actually feel about this, how she, the way that she presents it is that lots of minority groups actually feel this way when they talk to white people. They feel that they are not heard. They feel that they're silenced. They do feel that often the white culture is sociopathic and just steals things. And so I I would like that to be the gold standard for how to address these things in the future. Aside from the Yale not releasing it, I think that's reprehensible. I think that the creator of the content should definitely have access to it. And if she wants it posted, it should be posted. But the way that the media is handling things by allowing her to come on and discuss her ideas and essentially explain things when we we have to be allowed to say things poorly in order to get anywhere 
and people have to be able to play devil's advocate. That's another thing that I don't like lately, the death of the devil's advocate. And people say, this doesn't need a devil's advocate or that doesn't need a devil's advocate. I think that at the deepest root, I think it's a little bit arrogant. And the way that I interpret it is people say, I, I know so much about this thing and have experienced so much with this that any perspective that you bring to this will inherently be wrong. So I don't want you to speak about it at all. And I, I do think that people should be able to explain their ideas. And the fact that she's been able to explain this gives me hope that we could potentially expand this to all ideas that we inherently cancel because we don't agree with them. We think that this person's wrong and they should be silenced immediately. I think that people's willingness to actually sit down and have conversations about them, I think that's so much more important. And the fact that we were able to do this with this particular example is somewhat disheartening because of how I think outwardly problematic it would have been for any other group. And I think identifies to me or um, gives some kind of hint towards where culture could be going. But at the same time, I think that people's willingness to sit down and talk with her about her ideas, that gives me a lot of hope. I'd like to know what you think about that. Yeah. Um, so the, the devil's advocate thing, I, I, I agree with you. I think one of the biggest issues was um, particularly last summer, uh, people of color were given this quote-unquote forum to speak on their experiences. Where did that come from? A lot of it just social pressure and companies were like, like, hey, black people, come, let's chat on a Zoom and tell everyone what you felt. And that's different to what we're having, which is open dialogue. Right. Um, and I, I kind of think of it as, as someone who's... Uh, kind of has been stabbed or something right they're bleeding out like i was stabbed with a knife and someone was like i think you were stabbed by a sword you know what i mean like like yeah. just help me <laughs> where there are other people who um have opened themselves up to to back and forth dialogue and and that's when man fucking go for it go mm -hmm. for it and debate but all the people um aren't ready for that and and it was not it was not communicated to them that that's what it was going to be like when you when you talk to your experiences they weren't opening themselves up to um yeah debates and, and stuff so yeah that, that, you're, you're right it's just just a time and place uh it became a bit of a meme it was i saw one tiktok and it was like um tell me you're white without saying you're white and it was a guy like saying just to play devil's advocate I, and it, it kind of cracked me up so yeah um the other thing that stood out for me is i, I don't think it i do it too sometimes or i say well if you replaced white with black the the outcry would be different but i i just don't always think it's it's not fair to do that because they're not let's see i agree yeah 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 and i i knew you'd agree with that um and the and the stuff she's saying, I I totally understand. Without from what you've told me, I obviously haven't listened to it, but I I think I told you right at the start here. Like sometimes I just get so mad, but you're not you're not mad at like it's an idea that you're mad at really. Yeah, it's an idea that you're mad at. You're not mad at individual people. You could be, 
and that's a hard thing to to wrap your head around i so just this weekend i was in a tournament and i'll preface this with i really want to coach a high performance program one day and i hope this doesn't kick me in the butt but we're playing these two kids these two college age white guys the parents are watching and um it'd been a long tournament anyways we got into an argument about this guy was screening my partner and then he's screening me you can't do that in beach mm -hmm. and he starts going what do you want me to do and it's like well, it's not up to me to tell you what to do. You're just screening. We're telling you, like, you and your partner sort it out. Yeah. And um, a huge problem in my life is I have anger issues. It's something I've dealt with since I was born. Um, but nothing, like, I don't think anything sets me off more than entitlement or like this little smirk on his face that like I can say whatever I want and nothing's going to happen. People who have never been hit in the face before. Yeah. I used to be like that when I was in that middle school and then I went to Penrose High and I, I tried to do that my first month and I got my ass beat a couple times mm -hmm. and he's like what do you want me to do well you figure out says it again what do you want me to do I'm like I want you to shut up and he said what do you want me to do I'm like I told you I want you to shut up and he's like what do you want me to do? like a little smirk on his face and my partner Lucky for him, like he said, man, turn around, talk to your partner, you know, whatever. And I'm getting mad. We got into it one more time. And dude, I'm like, I'm 27. These guys are maybe 20 years old, maybe 19. I look like an idiot screaming. And oh, sorry, I missed the whole thing. One point they went at it again. And I said, you privileged little shits think you can come down here and say what you want. Like, because there's a net between us. Do you think I care? Your parents like, and uh, something came out of me, dude. <laughs> like, I was much more mad at something else than this actual situation. Yeah. But it all came out. And my, my partner is um, Beach Partners Indigenous. And we lost the game. I walked off to get my stuff. I'm like, I'm out of here. I'll wait for my partner. And I saw him chatting with these two guys and the parents. His parents are watching. Um, kind of explaining the whole thing. He, and so he came back. I'm like, dude, I'm really sorry. Like, I'm really embarrassed right now. And he's like, don't worry about it. Man. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, nah, dude, I'm really embarrassed. He's like, I don't think of you any differently. You know, I kind of needed that too. <laughs> and uh, he's like, it's all right, man. Sometimes it's fun to yell at white people. <laughs> he's like, they're not used to it. <laughs> like, you just said, you know, Billy's doing coke in his room. Mom comes in. What are you doing? He's like, F off, mom. I can do what I want. So they're not used to it. And I said, yeah. you know, that's a joke. I understand. Yeah. You get it, what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm driving back. Toronto traffic is insane. I'm like, no one, please, no one mess with me on my way home, please. And I, I'm pulling up when I set my apartment. It's pretty heavy traffic. The lane next to me um, was cut off, no left turn in a bunch of traffic this dude drives all the way past all the cars knowing he couldn't turn left and pulls up and i'm the second car next to the red and he his passenger asked the guy in front of me can i go in front of you and the guy's like no the passenger gets out of the car and stands in front of his car like you're letting me past and that was it I'm like you're the guy i'm like, I'm like 
get the fuck back in your car, you idiot. You deaf shit. Get the back in. I don't know if you heard me. Or he, he got back in. Light goes green. Guy in front of me drives. Uh, says, just go ahead. And they go, no, you go. So he drives off. I try to go. And the guy cuts me off. I'm like, oh, my God, man. So when we crossed the intersection, I rammed him. Like very, very like nothing, no dent, no nothing. Um, I don't know if I should be telling the story, but whatever. And he's like, are you okay, man? Like, I'm like, get the fuck back in your car. And he saw it on my face looking and I'm the whole time we're in traffic. I went, you better not do anything. Like, just please. I'm, I'm like in my head, like, please don't do anything because I'm going to lose my mind. And he didn't. And I came home came back to my girlfriend but i my point the point of the story is you there are situations where you get much madder about something a lot bigger and context does come into play in, in our language and how you act and i made assumptions about these kids that they're privileged kids that have never had their ass beat maybe they maybe they were mma fighters and were laughing like this dude with his tattoos and stuff i'll knock him out um tangent again man i'm sorry but no that's fine i think you i think you bring up a really good point that she was able to explain when she was given the opportunity was that she's not talking about all white people she doesn't think that all white people are sociopaths she thinks that it's a uh, part of the culture at large and that's something that you kind of touch on is there's a culture there's a way that we perceive groups and then there are the individuals in the within those groups and what I've experienced is that anytime that you break down those barriers of group identity, when you, when you sit down with an individual, that's all they are. Like that person 100%. is just a person. And so I think that's the, that's the perfect example for that idea that everyone should have the opportunity to explain what's going on in their life, in their mind, be able to be afforded the opportunity to say things poorly so that we can get to a higher area of resolution. and. I, as I definitely would not hope for you to be arrested in that situation <laughs> in that exact same way, I would hate for, I would hate for people to get canceled because of things that they say poorly or off the cuff. And that's kind of the, that's my, that's my thesis for this, regardless of what that woman said, regardless of how I took that personally or how I think that should be perceived in academia are irrelevant. The fact that she was able to actually explain the way that she thought, I think is the way that we should be handling a lot more of these issues. It, sh it should be. Um, it, one of the bigger problems is that who are the gatekeepers and who gets to decide what is right and what gets released, what, you know, who gets to decide who's banned off mm -hmm. Twitter. It's, it's popular to ban Trump. So let's do it. Whether or not that was the right thing or not. I mean, legally totally they're a private entity and mm -hmm. um these universities a university should be should be the place where ideas can be challenged these sorts of things can happen it's it's higher education right so yeah if, if this could be handled like that it, and it ties into the whole cancel culture that you alluding to before as well who, who gets to decide and it's all social pressure mm -hmm. and, and i that's yeah to tie things back to my 
original point about ivermectin and vaccine safety. What, what if we're not right? Mm-hmm. That's the, I think the scariest question that I could pose to anyone who's out, out to cancel someone or thinks that someone should be deplatformed because of the way that they think or the, the group that identifies with them rather than the group that they identify with is what if, what if we're wrong? What are the, what, what's the cost of being wrong in this situation? And could be a couple thousand lives, could be a couple million. We're not sure. We're never sure. But the ability to speak and have long form conversation like this seems to be the, a, a good alternative to people being silenced. Well, YouTube's taking us down, man. So you got to switch to Vimeo or something. There's a Brett Weinstein actually just switched to Odyssey. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to be switching. I'm going to be posting on both and hopefully moving towards Odyssey more in the future. Any, any platform that doesn't do censorship is one mm-hmm. that I'm in favor of. Oh. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's cut it there. Tyler, man. All right, man. Always, always a pleasure. I always dig way deeper. I probably made an ass of myself several times. I hope that I'm forgiven by the cancel masses for that. And nobody shows up at my door with, uh, with their pitchforks and torches and yeah. Hashtag don't cancel Josh. Don't cancel league of Josh, please. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get a couple more episodes out, man. Thanks a lot. Uh, where can people find you? Yeah, so on Instagram is uh, Dalanoa, T-A-L-A-N-O-A uh, dot podcast. And then, yeah, just Dalanoa podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. Killer. Can't wait for the next few episodes, man. Can't wait to make my guest appearance. <laughs> Appreciate you, man.